0: please join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1. Join me in prayer, please. Father, thank You that we can sing of Your mercy and who You are as a merciful God. You do not just perform acts of mercy. You are mercy. You are merciful. Thank You that we can sing of the fountain that never runs dry of grace that comes from You because not only do You act... In forms of grace, you uh, are gracious and kind and loving. Thank you, Father, that we can consider who you are. And we recognize as we read your word, it will continue to point out to us who you are. are, And it will also point out to us who we are. Help us to pay uh, attention to you through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen at the beginning of Marvel's movie Black Panther, there is a scene in the fictional kingdom of Wakanda. It was a scene depicting the coronation of Prince T'Challa. And before the coronation could take place, there was an open invitation from all the Wakandian tribes to challenge for the throne. And each tribe declared themselves with no challenge. And then in the background, you can hear chanting. And from a nearby cliff, through an opening, a number of members of the Jabari tribe march out. And their leader, Imbaku would challenge for the throne. They were to fight until surrender or death. And as the fight goes along, Imbaku is giving Prince T'Challa a, an old-fashioned beatdown. And then in the midst of this beatdown, his mother cries out, that is T'Challa's mother, show him who you are! It's a dramatic scene. And this was the turning point in this battle and T'Challa eventually uh, begins to turn the tables and eventually spares M'Baku's life. The only implication I want to draw from this scene is that there is... The reality that there are parts of us, parts of our nature, that are not always apparent at first glance. In fact, there are parts of our nature that we try to suppress and hide. But, in the right circumstances, or the wrong circumstances, our true nature is sometimes revealed to us, and to those around us. What we will try to understand this morning from our study of the last section of Romans chapter 1 is that when our lives are not bound or grounded upon God's revelation of Himself, our lives will display the unrighteousness of our natural spiritual condition. Let me say that again. When our lives are not grounded upon God's revelation of Himself, our lives will display the unrighteousness of our natural spiritual condition. In our study this morning, we will discuss five truths about our relationship with unrighteousness. The first of which is this. A loose grip, this is a long one, a loose grip on God's revelation results in a loose grip on God's standard of righteousness. A loose grip on God's revelation results in a loose grip on God's standard of righteousness. Let's take a look at our passage for this morning. It begins in verse 28 and goes to the end of the chapter. God's Word says, "...and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, Strife. Deceit. Maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. As we begin, we want to recognize what is the harbinger, the forerunner of all of those things, all of these character traits, all of these actions, all of these controlling factors. It really is because of a loose grip on God's revelation. In other words, he says, in the same way, just as he lets us know, just as they didn't seem fit, or excuse me, they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, they didn't hold on to the knowledge of God. And the New King James says they didn't retain God in their knowledge. They didn't see fit. The word is, and it's the Greek term, docemazo. Mazo. And the reason I point this out is not because I wanted you to be impressed with the word, but because Paul uses a play on words here that is important for us to recognize. They didn't dakemadzo. They didn't hold on to, they didn't seem think it was worth holding on to the knowledge of God. And as a result of that, God gave them up to a debased mind. And the word there is dakemas. Uh, And you can see the the root word that's involved in both of those. They're related terms, and so he's using a play on words for us to understand. Well, Frank Thielman gives us some clarity of that. Listen to what he, he wrote. Paul uses a skillful play on words to connect the contempt with which human beings treated God with God's punishment of handing human beings over to their own attitude. They tested the idea of acknowledging God and found it not qualified for their approval. The mind that works this way, however, is itself obviously unqualified for anything worthwhile. Listen carefully. God punished human beings then by giving them over to the worthless mind that found Him worthless. That is very clear in this passage. And how we're trying to understand it is because of their unwillingness to hold on to God and His revelation that He makes Himself clearly known through the things He's made. Because they refuse to hold on to that, God says, I'm not going to have you a mind that can hold on to anything worthwhile. Your worthless assessment of Me results in having a continuance of that worthless mind so this unfit mindset has a grave result in this context their disorderly unqualified unfit mind results in that what the rest of the verse says in verse 29 that they do what ought not to be done they do what ought not to be done. The New American Standard has this as doing those things which are not proper. And those things that are not proper in this context is obviously he's calling all of this unrighteousness. Remember, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their ungodliness suppress the truth of God. Their ungodliness suppresses God's truth. And here we have another application of that in Paul's exposition. He's letting us know that because of their qualifying God as unfit, God has given them a worthless worthless mindset, and that worthless mindset results in doing things that are not fitting, not proper, that are unrighteous, warranting the judgment of God. Because their minds are not tightly bound... By conviction to God's standard, there is a willingness to be open to the subjective whims of society and self. You've all heard people use this expression that's your truth, that's his truth, that's her truth. Oh, that's good for you. That's fine for you. That's fine for them. This is a result of not being grounded upon a standard. An objective standard. One that sits there and says, this is the standard. That's what the Bible stands as. A an objective, objective standard. There it is. It is uh, fixed truth. When we base our lives upon that objective truth, we recognize God's standard. Subjective standard means I determine or you determine and so there's difference from truth to truth. Of course, 2 plus 2 still equals 4 whether you agree with it or not. Right is still right and wrong is still wrong. But the Bible tells us, the prophets tell us, Isaiah tells us that there was going to be a time where they were going to call that which is sweet bitter and that which is bitter sweet. Well... That happened long ago, didn't it? And sometimes it can even happen within us. Now, the, the ultimate interpretation of this passage is about those that have rejected God outright. That doesn't mean, ladies and gentlemen, that we can sit here and think, yes, this is true of them. Yes, this is true of them. No, you can see the evidence of these truths right within your own heart, right within your own week. Maybe even this day. In those days, the author of Judges writes, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When we are loosely bound to God's revelation of Himself, we receive a loosely bound mind. And so the result of that is unrighteous actions. Paul is about to tell us why Subjective morality or subjective righteousness is a real problem. And so we'll proceed with that recognition. Unrighteousness can control a person's thinking. Unrighteousness can control a person's thinking. Because their minds are not tied to God's standard, other standards will rule over them. Know this, ladies and gentlemen. If you say, God will not rule over me. God's standard will not rule over me. You're just going to replace that rulership. You will come underneath the power of someone or something. The question is, under whose lordship will you reside? Sometimes that lordship is residing from underneath ourselves. And that is a very subjective norm. Well, I'll take a look at what he says here. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what it ought not to be done. They were filled, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. John Stott wrote, their depraved mind led this time not to immorality, but to a whole variety of antisocial practices which ought not to be done and which together describe the breakdown of human community as standards disappear and society disintegrates. It says they were filled in verse 29. It's in the perfect tense. We haven't had a good tense conversation for a while. The perfect tense is something that takes place in the past that has continuing results. They were filled and thus remain filled. They were filled and to this day they're filled. It's a continuation of that past tense. Now, the term filled can refer to fulfilling something like fulfilled prophecy. It's used that way many times in the Gospels. Sometimes it can mean something is filled to the top. Okay, So you've got a cup and it's filled up. It's filled. That's fine. That's another definition of it. And a third definition of it is to be controlled by something, to be controlled by something. I would loosely argue for that last definition of the Greek word pleirao, that they are controlled by unrighteousness, uh, controlled by evil, controlled by covetousness, controlled by malice. These items. If, if my understanding and my argument is correct, Paul would be saying that these people who have rejected God have been and continue to be controlled by all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. As you look at this passage, based upon the grammar and the word usage, most commentators break these 21 vices down into three groups. The first four are general categories of unrighteousness. We just read them in verse 29. The next five are unrighteous acts that break down human relationships. You see that at the end of verse 29, uh, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. There's the next five. And then the final 12 are... Characterizations of the unrighteous person himself. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. They are foolish, they are faithless, they are heartless, they are ruthless. This listing does not imply that everyone who rejects God acts out all of these character traits nor does it imply that there are no other ways that unrighteousness manifests itself. One writer, Thomas Schreiner, makes this statement, and I think it's valuable for us, to conclude that Paul is charging every single Gentile of these specific sins is unnecessary. Instead, he enunciates the principle that all Gentiles commit sin in thought, word, and deed. Paul is painting the picture of how rejecting God leads toward unrighteousness. And in my argumentation, at the beginning of verse 29, they were filled or controlled with all manner of unrighteousness, etc. How can it be said that unrighteousness controls a person? How can it be said that unrighteousness controls a person? Well, I want to show you that from the book of Romans, chapter six. Please take a look there with me. Read with me, please. Well, I'll read, you follow along, starting in verse 14. He's speaking to believers, and he said, For sin will have no, what does it say? Dominion over you, no sovereignty over you. Over you, no mastery over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then, are we to sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. The word there's Meganoita. It means, in the King James, it uses an expression, "God forbid." The term just simply means, let it never be. It should not be. Should we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness, but thanks be to God that you who were once what does it say slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching that's righteousness to which you were committed and having been set free from sin you have become slaves of righteousness. Can you see that he's he's contrasting our before salvation being lorded over by sin and unrighteousness, and after our salvation, the opportunity now for righteousness to rule over us before the law ruling over us and revealing our unrighteousness, now grace ruling over us and producing God's righteousness. What a difference that is. But can we see how unrighteousness can control a person? I believe that that's what we see in our context back in the book of Romans chapter 1. Sin before our salvation operated from a position of lordship. Sin before our salvation operated from a position of lordship. God's salvation, God's redemption, the Gospel, breaks that lordship. It breaks that lordship. When we sin... In these areas, as believers, it is because we choose to allow sin to master us again. In other words, we willfully yield ourselves. Whereas before our salvation, we were subject to the power of unrighteousness. And so we move from the loose the loose holding on to God's truth, leading to a loose mind that's out of control, unfit, and unqualified... Now, because of an unqualified mind, a loose mind, a subjective mind, now we're able to be controlled by unrighteousness. Well, there's a third truth back in Romans chapter 1 about unrighteousness and our relationship toward it. Unrighteousness is displayed in actions. Unrighteousness is displayed in actions. Now as he moves from the filled and the, at the beginning of verse 29 to the full in the second half of verse 29 he uses a different word. They are full, it's an adjective, full of envy, full of murder, full of strife, full of deceit. Full of maliciousness. It is navigating, that word full is navigating all five of those descriptions. They are filled or full. These things are the the outworkings of a mind controlled by unrighteousness. Unrighteousness controls the mind and then the mind and body act out that unrighteousness in real life. In these five areas, he just gives us these categories. That's not to say that there are not other ways that unrighteousness reveals itself. To have a a better grasp on this, I want for us to turn to James chapter 3. And we read some of James chapter 3 in our responsive reading earlier. We're going to look at James chapter 3 from where we started and then actually go a little further into chapter 4. Because in James chapters 3, going into chapter 4. A good deal of what Paul is condemning about the unrighteous activity of those who reject God is demonstrated in these passages. So we're talking about being full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. You can see a lot of that here in this text in James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? What is your natural response to that question? Me? I think. Maybe it's me. I think. I might be wise. And I might be understanding. If you didn't think that about yourself, no, you don't think you're the smartest person. I don't think. And you probably don't think you're the wisest person. But you're pretty confident at this stage in your life that you know how to live. Right? So that's why you make decisions about your employment, and you make decisions about your finances, make decisions about how you and your family operate, or you're wise in your understanding. So our natural answer to that question is, well, that's me, of course. Well, James, God, through James, wants for us to answer that question this way. By his good, what does it say? Conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So, show your wisdom by your actions. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, don't call yourself wise in understanding if you're competing with other people, if you're jealous of other people, if you have your own self-interests always at the front of your mind verse 15 this is not the wisdom that comes down from above but it's earthly unspiritual demonic what do we call that common you're just acting like the average joe or mary this is the way we act you come out of the your mother's womb and you want what you want right I'm thirsty! Give me something to drink! No, you don't say it. You scream it. There's something in my diaper! (laughs) And it doesn't get a whole lot better from there. A little more refined. Same stuff. You're 43 now. Hopefully you don't have to wear a diaper. Some people do. So I'm not... Don't get mad at me. I wasn't, you know, some people do, have to. I don't yet. But there are other ways that we demonstrate that we want what we want. We always know what we want. And there are ways that we almost demand what we want. We have more refined ways of doing it. Sometimes it's bribery. It's all kinds of things we do to demonstrate that we have the same mindset. Selfish ambition, it's natural to us. It's common. Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Well, that's what he's talking about back in Romans when he's talking about those that are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. You're just looking out for your own best interests. He goes on a little further. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be... Now, that's an interesting word. Disorder. Disorder. Now, it's not the same word that we looked at, but didn't God give them over to a debased, out of control, unfit mind? It's interesting how there's a similarity in relationship between what Paul is saying in Romans 1 and what James is saying here in James chapter 3. There will be disorder in every vile, we call that unrighteous, practice. (sighs) Then we have a breath. A breath of fresh air in the midst of some less than happy moments. But, the wisdom from above, you might say, the fruit that comes from the Spirit, the grace that comes from God, reveals itself differently than this. It is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And a harvest of what? Righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so we have the contrast to the selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And then we come right back to that topic again in chapter 4 and verse 1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war? Where? Within you! There's a war within you. You desire and you do not have. So you what? You murder. Well, that's one of the demonstrations of unrighteousness back in Romans chapter 1. Murder. Why? Because you want something. And they have it or well, they're in your way to you having it. So let's get them out of the way. Murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you what? fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world Makes himself an enemy of God. This is the same stuff. It's on a different page. And if you want, go ahead, say this is true about your neighbor. It is. Oh, you can say it's true about my spouse. They're horrible. Oh, it's true about my kids. They're rotten. Oh, it's true about my grandparents. They're terrible. No. Yes, but no. How about look at yourself in the mirror? How about if I look at myself in the mirror? Just realize, this, this is what I do of my own natural resources. Oh, you might suppress some of it. You've become dignified and you're a moral person. That's nothing wrong with morality, right? We all want to be moral. Our parents taught us morality. Don't do these things, they're bad. Do these things, they're good. This is good. We should care about morality but we're talking about something more than being good to your neighbor for the sake of being a good person. We're talking about the standard of God. Maybe some of our refined Christian attributes that we've learned to execute and put into practice are fleshly, and all of these same passions rule over us in our brain. Unrighteousness doesn't need to come to the outside to be unrighteous. Now I'm not talking, listen carefully, I'm not talking about temptation. Everyone is tempted. What do you do with that temptation is the issue. When I'm tempted to covet, when I'm tempted to desire, when I'm tempted to be uh, selfishly ambitious, when I'm tempted to be bitterly jealous of someone else, and I say, take that thought captive to obedience to Christ, and say, Lord, this is not what I, what I want. This is not what You want. I, 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 don't, I don't want these unrighteous thoughts and deeds to control me and you commit them to the Lord and you ask Him for His grace, then while unrighteousness desired to have you and rule over you, God's Spirit allowed you to rule over it. Isn't that what God calls us to do? There's no one in this room, no one listening, that doesn't battle with these things. And there's no one in this room that God didn't tell you that you were going to battle with these things. We are all familiar with Galatians 5.16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is such a wonderful thing. But the Bible also includes verse 17 which says, for the desires of the flesh, this is of a believer, are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the Flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And so there's this battle inside of us, and the question is to whose lordship will I yield? See, unrighteousness wants to control our thinking, and then unrighteousness is displayed in our actions. And he lists a few different ways. We already discussed them, but uh, we already listed them, but I just want to briefly enumerate them. First of all, envy. Sometimes we can envy someone's job. Sometimes we can envy someone's spouse. Sometimes we can envy someone's lifestyle. We could envy someone's looks. You could even envy someone's joy. These are manifestations of unrighteousness. Murder. Murder. Isaiah and Paul both speak of those who are swift to shed blood. Maybe that's not your tendency. I've never really wanted to murder someone. I have wanted to punch someone in the face before. and I don't, It's not really that funny. I didn't mean it to be funny. Um, but I've, I don't really think I've ever wanted to murder someone. I don't think that punching someone in the face is a whole lot better. It's, it's better because they're still alive. Strife. Strife. Dividing rather than helping. Strife is listed as a fruit of the flesh in Galatians 5.20. And it's also listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as a reason that the Corinthians could not receive the meat that Paul wanted to give them because there was strife and division among them. Deceit. Jesus had an important conversation With his disciples that included deceit. Listen to what he says. This verse, this set of verses, is going to come up one more time in a few minutes for us. So we'll have two opportunities to enjoy what Jesus has to say here in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Peter warns believers to put away deceit and malice in order to rightly desire the truth of God's Word. And he also tells us that our Savior had no deceit in His mouth. These are character traits, actions, that are unrighteous. And the last one that he listed back in Romans chapter 1 is maliciousness. Maliciousness. Now that is a compound word. When you break that compound word down, It can be read an abode of evil or a character of evil. That's maliciousness. An abode, a place where evil resides, a a character of evil. One source defines it as conscious and intentional wickedness. Conscious and intentional wickedness. These are some of the varieties of unrighteousness that proceed from those who refuse to hold on to God's revelation of Himself. First, their minds are unfit to act in line with God's righteousness. Then they are controlled by unrighteousness. And thus they do unrighteous things. Which leads us to a following concept. Unrighteousness Reveals a person's nature. Unrighteousness reveals a person's nature. We already talked about the progression of thought. Unfit mind because they don't hold God, controlled by unrighteousness, acting in unrighteousness, and then called out as unrighteous people. He uses, back in Romans chapter 1, are you you in Romans 1? I'm not sure if you are. Head back to Romans chapter 1 at the end of verse 29, starts this last section, they are gossips. Now you see they are there? Well, they are, those two words, not in the Greek. (laughs) They are. It's not there. Uh, It's implied. Because what it does is Paul moves into this section and he just starts using, in the Greek language, the accusative. The accusative is roughly the same thing as our direct object or our predicate nominative. So here you are. Rob, subject, hits, verb, the ball, ball is object. Okay? Now if you're talking about a predicate nominative it's it's, it's I'm not really that great at, at English, but you're you're now using a being verb. Rob is the ball. Now I am not a ball, but let's just for this. Well, I'm getting close. I don't want to be a ball. Rob is, and it characterizes something. So that's that's the idea. You've got the subject, you have the verb, and you have the object. So he just lists a bunch of objects. Objects. It, he says gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. So you can supply what the translators did very correctly, they are gossips. They are slanderers. Paul is not just saying they gossip. And he's not just saying they commit slander. He is characterizing them. Oh, don't paint me with a broad brush stroke. Well, Paul's not listening to your complaint. He's characterizing people. And this is an important reality. Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, also paints with a broad stroke. He says, the heart, that's the heart of every man, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The term 'they're desperately sick, can be translated incurable. What is sick? The heart of man. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying in Mark chapter 7 that we already read and I'm going to reiterate for our edification. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You see, there are important, essential implications for us as believers. Now, you've been living as a Christian for however long it is. So whatever I'm talking about next, you're very familiar with what I'm saying. In fact, everything I'm sure that I've talked about, you're familiar with what I've said. In the course of our day, God points out our sin. Right? He does it by His Word. He does it by His Spirit. And He does it by His people. This happens in the course of our days. When He does, we rightly come to confession. We confess our sins. Not to a man, but to God. We confess our sins. And we're very confident about this, aren't we? Because we're, what we're talking about is grounded in the, the truth of the Scriptures. In 1 John chapter 1, in verse 9, the Bible says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We believe this. What I can say to you, friends, and I think this is very important for us this is not to be a sterile, mechanical process. The word confess in the Greek is the Greek term homolegeo, it means to say the same thing. In other words, when we confess our sin to God, we are saying that we have come into agreement with God. We're saying that whatever God says about our sin is true, and we come to terms with that. We agree with God about what God says about our sin. We see sin as God sees it. I think, and this is where I want to make an implication, and it's very important for us, so don't this is not the day to start dreaming about your lunch. I think we need to take one step further in this thought process. When I get angry, I need to understand why I'm getting angry. My flesh will tell me that it's because I'm surrounded by idiots. They're annoying pests in my way, they're keeping me from getting what I want, what I need, what I deserve. So I become angry. It really is, oh God, I was angry. They're the cause. They're the, they're the problem. The truth is, and this is what I need, I need to understand, and I've, I've come to terms with this, Believer, if you haven't come to terms with this, you need to come to terms with this. The truth is, I get angry because I am an angry person. I covet because I'm a covetous person. I am malicious because I am a malicious person. It is my natural condition. Let's take a look at this a little bit, please. Ephesians chapter 4. My old nature needs to be put aside. Who I am humanly, of my own fleshly nature, needs to be put aside. In Ephesians chapter 4, the passage is very clear. Beginning in verse 22, listen to what God's word says. To put off your old self. In Colossians 3.5, he says to put to death the deeds of the body. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is, 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 not was, is, corrupt. Corrupt through deceitful lusts or desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. In what? What does it say? In true righteousness and holiness. See, this is the Gospel in the life of the Christian. This is living by grace. Where we recognize I am not better today than I was 25 years ago when I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I am not. I am the same. Humanly. Now, God has made changes in my life that impact my day-to-day life, right? I don't do the same things because I realize that's not the way of a Christian. So, I'm smart enough to say, well, I'm not going to go down that road. But... In my nature, my nature hasn't changed as a human. So I have to put it aside. I have to put it off. I have to crucify my flesh with its affections and its lusts. And when I do, when I set that aside, I am ready to be renewed in the spirit of my mind. Well, how do I do that? Well, that's we look in God's Word, right? And we hear from Him. And we talk to Him. Asking for mercy, asking for grace. There's a renewal of our mind that takes place. Romans 12 talks about it quite a bit, doesn't it? And then, put on. Put on. This means I don't don't own what I'm about to put on. It comes from without me. In other words, it's not mine to control. From a... Theological standpoint, it does come from within me because God's Spirit dwells within me. So we're putting on what belongs to Him. And it is a new creation. It's a new man. And it was, past tense, created perfectly in true righteousness and holiness. When I put off my flesh and put on the, the Lord Jesus Christ, I am right now an instrument Fit for God's use. I am a a man controlled by God's Spirit that will exhibit the fruit of the Spirit and the righteousness of God. Um, Take a look at one more passage about this Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Lest we think this is simply a mechanical process, we understand this is also grace driven. In Romans chapter 8, we'll read verses 12 through 14. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Listen carefully. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. See, God makes us aware that our natural man is tarnished by sin. And in this life, our old nature will not be godly. He does not tell us, God does not tell us to turn over a new leaf, but to put our old man to death and to put on our new man. We need to allow the new, spiritual, perfect, holy, righteous man controlled by the Spirit, to be seen. This is the only way toward practical righteousness. This is the only way toward a righteousness that is demonstrated in life. I want to share with you uh, what John Stott had to say as he characterized the end of our passage. It's very helpful to um, see his analysis all commentators seem to agree that the list of devi- uh, devices oh, excuse me, that the list defies neat classification. It begins with four general sins with which these people have become filled, namely every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Then come five more sins which they are full of, and which all depict broken human relationships: envy murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Next come a couple of their own, which seem to uh, refer to libel and slander, although J.B. Phillips offers a characteristically imaginative translation, whispers behind doors, and stabbers in the back. These two are followed by four, which seem to portray different In extreme forms of pride, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Now comes another independent couple of words denoting people who are inventive in relation to evil and rebellious in relation to parents. And the list ends with four negatives. Senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, which J.B. Phillips rather neatly renders without brains, honor, love, or pity. Head back to Romans chapter 1 as we conclude. What is all of this for? What is Paul's argument? His argument is not necessarily the way I've been communicating because most of us that come here know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and God's wrath is not abiding on us, nor do we have any expectation of experiencing that wrath. The context here is that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth? So we're talking about unbelievers. We're looking at it, understanding that context, but also trying to see, all right, how does this impact my own character? How 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 do I respond to this? So we're looking at it a little bit differently than Paul's intention, so that we're able to apply it all along. His goal is to point out that every single person sits under the desperate need of the gospel. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's described for us that these people have, have seen God as unfit, and so God gave them an unfit mind. The result of that unfit mind is they do the things that are unfitting. Makes sense, right? And then he goes to, to, uh, to talk about those things. He, he discusses how they're filled with unrighteousness. And they do unrighteousness because they are unrighteous. As we come to the very last verse, it will only just take us a moment. Unrighteousness, excuse me, unrighteous people that was not correctly written there. Unrighteous people often invite others to join in. Unrighteous people often invite others to join in. Look at verse 32. "Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. So nothing new here other than giving approval to those who practice them. And the word really can be translated to take pleasure in. It's almost like, yeah, come on, let's do this together. Why would you let that rule be over you? Why would you let that ruler be over you? He doesn't exist Let's just forget about him. Let's just pretend he doesn't exist. We'll order all of our thoughts and all of our deeds in light of the fact that he doesn't exist. Come on, let's do this together. It's almost like evangelizing with folly unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, they might do a better job of it than we do. They might spread their message of folly better than we spread God's message of salvation. Paul was eager to preach the Gospel to counter this unrighteousness. For the Gospel of Jesus Christ rescues us from unrighteousness. The Gospel rescues us from the controlling influence of unrighteousness. The Gospel rescues us from the demonstration of unrighteousness. The Gospel rescues us from our nature of unrighteousness. The Gospel rescues us from glorying in unrighteousness. And the Gospel rescues us from the consequences of unrighteousness. This is why every time we're together and I get to open my mouth, I want to point you and myself to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you need it, and I need it. God's Gospel rescues us. Do you know what this Gospel is? If you don't, after we sing in just a couple of moments, there will be a number of us at the front. We would love to share with you what this Gospel is so you can be rescued from the controlling power of unrighteousness. Your nature of unrighteousness and the consequences of dealing with God's wrath against your unrighteousness. We would love to share the Gospel with you. Have you experienced this rescue we've spoken of? It is available through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we need You desperately. Help us that we would see ourselves as You see us. First of all, if we're believers, we know You see us as your sons and daughters. You see us through the righteous deeds of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've redeemed us. Help us also to see ourselves in light of what we need to put off. So instead of just confessing our sins, we will understand who we are without You. And so we'll cling to You. I pray, Father, You'd give us a desperate desire to have your Son, your Spirit, your Word controlling us, that we might demonstrate your character from now until the end, which is eternal in Jesus' name. Amen.